Well, good morning. It's my pleasure to be with you here, not only this morning, but for this whole weekend. Uh, my, my first time to Australia, I, I flew into Melbourne uh, a little earlier last week and then came over to Perth, and it's been a wonderful visit. As Kieran mentioned, uh, as I'm here, since it's, I've come a very long way, he, he thought he'd put me to work. Uh, so uh, we have the seminar, and, and I have the privilege of sharing God's Word, and then we have another little seminar. So it's been a, a wonderful, busy trip. Uh, I wanted to introduce myself a little bit. Um, my name is John Horry, and in the past, I served as a pastor And in the more recent past, I've been serving as a missionary with a group called See Jesus. And so typically I have an opportunity to go to different parts of the world uh, in the United States and primarily East and South Asia uh, to train pastors. And so uh, it's been a privilege to be able to be connected to Kieran through some of the networks that we've worked in. And uh, I did know the answer to the ketchup. I don't know why, but I knew that ketchup for some reason was started in China. Um, so this is my family, and uh, my wife Sonia and I have, are, are going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary this Tuesday, so I'll make it back just in time. Um, and this is uh, my eldest, Kristen. Uh, she, this was last year, so she got married. She's 23 now, and she married Andrew. And uh, our son, Evan, is uh, finished up college and off and working. Uh, our daughter, Eden, is in studies, uh, and she's at home along with our youngest, Jaron, who's 16 years old. Now, our family did not always look this nice and dressed up and, and, and all ready to go. If I could take you from this moment and go backwards in time, roughly maybe two years previous... Uh, I was in Bangkok in March of 2020, and this is a young man that was traveling with me who I disciple, and so his name is Nathan. And so Nathan and I were traveling in Bangkok, and I was doing a pastor's training there. And, you know, in the United States, there was this little thing that was called a pandemic that people were talking about, and being an American, I thought, it's not that big of a deal. Probably be over in a couple weeks. We'll get into Bangkok and get right back, and it'll be all done. And so uh, we made it back just in time, a couple weeks ahead of when all the airports were shut down. And about three days after returning from Bangkok, my wife Sonia got very sick. And so you have to try to remember what it was like back then. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of testing going on. Uh, there's not a lot of information about this thing called COVID-19. And so Sonia gets very sick, and so we didn't know what to do. And so she, she gave me permission to share this picture from when she was sick, as long as I didn't share her face. Um, and so we didn't know what to do, so we just isolated her in our bedroom. And uh, you can see some of her favorite chocolates. This was kind of a, a love offering from our children who would occasionally drop things off uh, for their mother for obviously they were very concerned. And so it, we kind of developed this routine where I would, I would cook the meal and then I would have a special portion or a tray for her and bring the plates back down and wash them thoroughly with hot water 
Uh, and after a while, uh, my hands would be red and chapped um, because of all of the incessant washing. And then uh, my daughter, who you just saw who was married, uh, previous to that, she was in, at college, so she, she came home early. So all of a sudden, we have my four children at home, two naughty dogs that are in the house, and life is quite stressful. And so, um, I forgot, this is our routine. I would give her food, and then I would eat with her outside of the bedroom, um, and we'd share meals together in that way. Now, after everybody would go to sleep late at night, and I finally was all by myself, I would have these, these fears and thoughts that would pass into my head. And, and don't ask me why, but for some reason I started watching a show on Netflix that had to do with zombies. And it was probably the, 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 the worst thing you could do. And, it would just, and so after a while I realized, you know, I, I'm worried about my wife's health. I'm worried about my own financial stability in light of being a fundraising missionary. I'm worried about my children and how to lead them through. And so I began to pray. And not just pray, but pray out of desperation. What I really wanted was some kind of resurrection, some kind of change that God would bring. Some of you might be in a season where you too long for some kind of resurrection. It may be big or it may be small. It may be a relationship that has been stuck for quite some time. It may be something that is within you, a habit, a piece of your character that you've been longing for some kind of change. Or maybe it's your job or your current life circumstance. Whatever it might be, I hope and pray that this morning's sermon might be of help and of timely encouragement to you. And so we're going to focus on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but before we do, I think it's appropriate and necessary that we first focus on where the Apostle Paul came from that might help shed light into what he writes later in 2 Corinthians 4. And so we're introduced the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 8. And back then he was called Saul, and I'll just keep referring to him as Paul. And it says, and, and, and Paul approved of his execution. Now this word his is talking about a man named Stephen. And there arose on that great day a, a, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the minute that we are introduced to Paul the first thing we're told is that he executed a man with the face of an angel, and that's how Scripture refers to Stephen. So try to imagine that your resume, I worked here, I went to this school, I executed a man with the face of an angel. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but that wasn't good enough for Paul because we see that he was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so we're, we get this rude and very abrupt introduction to Paul, and then he drops off the pages of Scripture as far as we can see, and then suddenly reappears in chapter 9. 
And so as we pick up Paul's story, it says, but Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's a very eloquent way of saying he's still really mad and he's still really mean. And so he's, he's still very, very upset, and we, we discover that he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. In other words, it wasn't good enough for him to either kill or imprison Christians in his local region. He wanted permission to pursue them all the way to Damascus. So that if he found any of them out in, the, out in Damascus who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now at this point, it's natural to wonder, Paul, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? Have you lost your mind? Why are you acting this way? Are you crazy? But if we really understand Paul and his context, then we understand that he's actually not crazy. He's actually acting with great integrity. Because integrity is actually the, what you say you believe actually matches what you do. And so Paul is simply acting on what he truly believed. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. And Paul's father was a Pharisee, as we learn in Acts chapter 23, verse 6. And so naturally, Paul wanted to go into the family business. And so we, re, we may remember that the Pharisees were a people that were passionate about resurrection. So sometimes when you read the stories of Jesus, you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they team up together to try to persecute Jesus. That was how much they hated Jesus, because normally the Pharisees and Sadducees are arguing against one another. And what they would argue about is the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And so... The Pharisees not only believed there would be a final resurrection someday when the Lord would come and raise the righteous from the dead, but the Pharisees also believed that God was going to restore or resurrect things right now as well. And so, in other words, they believed that there would be real-time resurrection, not just a future one. And so the Jews called this picture of resurrection shalom. It was the restoration of human flourishing at every level of society. It was paradise on earth. So it included financial prosperity, a booming economy, business conducted with integrity, private property ownership, and everyone living in surplus. It also included religious prosperity, righteous leaders who lead people to worship the only true God, and a people who live with faithfulness. It also included political prosperity. God would use the nation of Israel to lead the rest of the world to worship and only obey him. And so shalom was what resurrection looked like for the Pharisees. This was their deepest longing. It's what motivated everything they did. It's what dominated their studies, their teaching, their conversations. It's what they sang about. It's what they prayed for. And if you're like me, maybe you're not that much different from the Pharisees. After all, don't we all long for some kind of resurrection in life? It doesn't have to be during a pandemic that we long for some economic stability 
or that our churches would grow in faithfulness or that somehow this country would lead others to worship the only true God. And so we must realize this is how the Pharisees felt. They had a deep longing for a better future, but the reality was the complete opposite. The Jews lived under the oppression of a pagan Roman government empire, and and, and they were mistreated, and most were suffering in harsh poverty. The Jewish religious and political leaders were grabbing for power and money, and they were sold out to the Romans. And so if you remember guys like Caiaphas or Pilate. And so in the Pharisees' mind, the main reason that the resurrection was not beginning now was because a lack of faithfulness. So they took it upon themselves to define what faithfulness was, and they tried to abide by that. But they also took the liberty to put that standard upon everybody else. And so it was not just the law of God, but it was way above and beyond what the law required. And so along comes Jesus, and as they plot against Jesus, amongst many things, one of the primary reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus was because they felt like he was not being faithful. And he was teaching others not to be faithful. Isn't it ironic that they wanted to kill Jesus because they felt like he was the one preventing resurrection from happening. And yet, this is how, exactly how the, 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 uh, that Paul viewed the world. And yet, as we all know, that this was about to change because when we pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, Paul goes on his way to Damascus, And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul has a real personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. This is not just kind of a mysterious vision of a supernatural being. This is the resurrected Jesus standing right before him, living, active, breathing. And this was not just like a, a religious, miraculous moment. This was a moment that turned Paul's world completely upside down. He was probably thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the righteous one, if he is the faithful one, then you mean the faithfulness of Israel is no longer the answer to the problem? You mean Jesus is? You mean his faithfulness? You mean his righteousness? His resurrection changes everything? And on the flip side, Paul had to be wondering, everything that I ever taught or hoped for, or dreamed of, and even killed for, was entirely wrong. And so what flipped his world upside down? It was coming to know and see the person of Jesus, the God-man crucified unjustly on the cross of Calvary, yet raised from the dead on that third day and standing gloriously before him. And so when we enter into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we can see how it changed him and how Paul's Christian life looks. So 
as we enter 2 Corinthians 4, let's take note here. I want, I want to highlight a few things. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing powers from God and not from us. And we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. And we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body, so that death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Skipping to verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, as we look at this passage, take note, it's written probably 20 years after Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Let's assume that Paul was actually a pretty good Christian. So 20 years after walking with Jesus day by day by day, take note that his life is still full of clay and being hard-pressed and perplexed and struck down and death and mortal bodies. And so Paul is not removed from the brokenness of this world or even the brokenness of his body. He's very well aware of his circumstances. And, for, and so for some of us, I mean, it, it doesn't take much convincing to know that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean your life here on this earth becomes pain-free and perfect. In fact, sometimes the pain actually increases. And when that happens, we begin to wonder why. Shouldn't knowing Jesus bring new life and a better life here on this earth? And that's a legitimate question. And, and, and so the Apostle Paul is very well aware of his circumstances, and yet somehow we know that he doesn't get stuck in the death. Right now, you might be living in a season where it's easy to get stuck in the death. And if we get stuck in the death, then when we look around life, all of life looks like only jars of clay. And it's only hard-pressed, and life is all persecuted and, 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 and perplexed, and all we do is carry around the body of death, and it's death at work in us, and outwardly we're wasting away, and we have a lot of troubles, and it's only what is seen, and what is seen is temporary. So how do we stay in touch with the reality of a broken world and yet not get stuck in it? And so Paul actually gives us a lens previous to this section in verse 6. And so in in chapter 4, verse 6, this is the lens by which he sees life. It says, For God who said, "Let let light shine out of darkness, made 
his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus. There's obviously a theme to this little verse here. Uh, The theme is repeated, light, light, light. And, And Paul uses the imagery, it's almost as if taking the broadest of light and beginning to narrow it down into laser focus. So for instance, at the beginning there, he he references and has this imagery of creation in Genesis. And he says, that God who was there from the very beginning of time, the one who said, let let light shine into the darkness, that's the God we're talking about. So you have this picture of light uh, cast all throughout the darkness. And then it begins to narrow and he says, that same God made his light shine very specifically into our hearts. And as that light shined into our hearts, we gained the light of knowing God's glory. How did we know? Was it downloaded into our brains? No. We saw God's glory in the very face of Jesus. So Paul says, this grand great light, God shone directly into my heart. And I gained the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus, first on that Damascus road, and then every day thereafter. And so, over 20 years later, the same resurrected Jesus that confronted Paul on that dusty road is still shining brightly in his life. Paul is still enthralled with the radiance of Jesus. And so Paul is not just remembering what happened with Jesus in the past. He's walking with Jesus today, alive and active at work in his life. And so I shared this at the conference uh, just briefly, that sometimes we, we live as if the Holy Spirit who resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit who resurrected our hearts in faith, somehow goes dormant and asleep. And I heard there's no groundhogs in Australia, so let's imagine a wombat goes down into the ground, burrows all the way to the end of eternity, and pops up at the end of resurrection day. That's how we live, as if, as if somehow the resurrection power and the presence of Jesus will, will go dormant until the final day. The resurrected Jesus that Paul was confronted by lives today and is active today in my life and yours, in and through his spirit. He has not gone dormant. He has not gone underground. He is here right now. If he wasn't, then the scriptures say that our gathering here is all in vain. And so that's why it's so important to walk and abide with Jesus Because if we have our eyes fixed on the world, then all we can see is death. But if we're walking through this world with Jesus, we don't have our eyes closed to the pain of this world, but we're continually looking back at him. And so it's very sweet. Yesterday we were taking a walk uh, with Kieran and his family and his littlest one, Jazzy, at one point grabbed my hand. And it was very sweet because there was a lot of trust in grabbing my hand as we walked, but it's sweet because she would look up. 
as we walked. In a much greater way, that's what it's like with walking with Jesus. He grabs our hand, and we still are looking where we're walking, but we keep looking at him, and we're going to be okay. And we not only look at him, but we look at what he's looking at and how he's looking at it, so that when we look into a life of brokenness, we not only see death, but we see in the midst of the death that there is treasure. And that it's surpassing powers from God and not from us. And and, and so we're not crushed. We're not in despair. We're not abandoned. We're not destroyed because we know that the life of Jesus is being revealed in our body. And we are alive. And his life is being revealed. And and life is at work in you. And therefore, we don't lose heart. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day by the Spirit and achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So therefore, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. Since what is unseen is eternal. This is the vision of reality that Paul saw. It keeps him from getting stuck in the death. He sees the resurrected Jesus at work throughout his entire life. He sees life coming out of death everywhere he works, lives, prays, because the Spirit of Jesus is actively and repeatedly bringing life from death. And so if I take you back to that very scary time in my life uh, in 2020, March 2020, I'm praying night after night and seemingly nothing changes. Now, I forgot to mention in first service, my wife did eventually get better. (laughs) Some people are wondering, did she get better? Yes, she got better. So she began to be healed, but it, it took four weeks. But I also began to notice little flickers of resurrection. So uh, my youngest, who is our, our, our biggest fighter, literally, he's a, he's a jiu-jitsu champ, also has the t- most tender heart. And so suddenly he wants to be the one who helps make mom's food, and he wants to bring it to her. And, and I'm not even sure where he, I think he cut the neighbor's flower, flower show. I, I, I don't want to know where he got it from. I'm like, because I know we don't have this in our yard. So I'm like, where'd you get? No, I'm not going to ask. But I begin to see the resurrection in his heart, in him, of his servanthood begin to emerge. And then I come down one day and I realize My kids generally get along, but they're usually not going to be playing board games unless we force them to. But they were all playing together. And then when when Sonia got sick, the boys told me that I could sleep in their room and they would move downstairs. And it was really an excuse because even though they were quite quite old, they wanted to set up a, a, a fort, a massive fort and tent in the living room. And so they claimed they were helping me, but they, they, it was, I'm so glad Sonia was in the bedroom because if she saw this, she would be horrified. And so for the longest time, they wouldn't let the girls in. Sisters are out. This is a boys only kind of. Uh, but one night I came down and they were all hanging out in the, in the fort and, and, and watching a, a movie online. And so I'm beginning to see flickers of God at work in ways that I could either not predict nor determine. 
And then my work, even though I'm not traveling, everything uh, was going online. And this looks like a sophisticated uh, studio, and, but if you actually zoom out the lens, you'll see that I'm in a closet underneath our staircase. So there's no room to move around. But in that little closet, God began to multiply and deepen the places and the relationships and the opportunities to do ministry all over the world. And in many ways, actually, if I were really precise in connecting the dots, I have a feeling I could connect these dots to me being here, honestly. So many of the relationships that were deep in here and the partnerships and then meeting Kieran and growing in friendship and partnership with him during the pandemic and then eventually being here was all a byproduct of what was happening back then. And so when we want to have a resurrection lens. And as we walk with Jesus, we need to be resurrection hunters. Here's two quick points. Resurrections are often subtle. They often happen over time. So be patient and be watchful. And they will happen in ways that you least expect and at times that you probably did not predict. And so the lens by which you watch that is through prayer. And secondly, evil has a sticky quality to it. In other words, uh, if we were to all gaze at the sun, literally, and I took a coin and I put it in front of my eye, it acts like as if it could block out the sun. And so sometimes all we need to do is take a step back and realize the coin is just a coin and the sun is still the sun. And so sometimes evil is just like that coin. It gets up really close or we put ourselves right up into it and all we can see is evil and it somehow blocks out the light of Jesus. And so what if the Jesus you met many years ago for many of you still lives today and what if he's still full of power and what if he still cares about you and what if he still breathes new life into dead people and dead places? If so, then we do not need to be of despair, but can become a people of great hope. And so I I know that normally we would go into a time of prayer, and and Kieran's given me permission to do something just slightly different. In light of of what you experienced, many of you experienced in the the, um, seminar yesterday, I'd like to ask if you wouldn't mind just grouping up a, a, a group of five or six people, and, and we're just going to spend a little bit of time praying together. And what I'd like you to do is just pray as a group for any area that you would like to see resurrection happen. It can be big. It could be small. And if you are uncomfortable praying out loud or at all, you don't have to say a thing. As we mentioned yesterday, silence is often a good thing as well as the Spirit moves in silence.